Turn with me, if you will, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look this morning at just verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. These days we're often anxious about the uh, threats on the horizon, always. No longer is it the Cold War threat of a nuclear holocaust, and now we face threat, the threat of terrorism, all kinds of terrorism, even nuclear terrorism. But understanding how real those threats are, we're learning to adjust and to take measures to prepare ourselves as a society, sometimes individually, for these things are certainly real threats. But on the horizon is, lies an ominous reality which is an even greater threat than terrorism. Yet few people even believe it exists, and fewer still take any steps to prepare themselves for it. Although it rushes toward us with awesome certainty. I'm talking about Judgment Day, which is the subject of our text this morning. Perhaps the most unpopular subject preacher could possibly address, but here it is in verse 10. So our text is just verse 10, but let's put it in its context, and I'll read verses 1 to 10, though we dealt with those previous, uh, those earlier verses uh, last time. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And then our text. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Though judgment, by definition, is an ominous uh, subject, this particular text uh, treats it a bit differently than some others. Here we have both some encouraging uh, words and also some very somber words words. So let me suggest two truths this morning. The first is this. Judgment holds no terror for those who are in Christ. Judgment holds no terror for those who are in Christ. Did you ever tell a story that you thought was just the most interesting or most hilarious thing that you'd ever seen happen? And as you tell it and you get to the punchline and you tell it, your hearer is just kind of giving you this blank stare. And it suddenly occurs to you that line, I, I, I guess you had to be there. <laughs> 
taken out of context, it's just a dumb statement. It's just some meaningless event. Context, context is everything. Well, the context of the gospel, indeed the context of everything about our life before God, that context is the reality of God's judgment ahead. Much of the scripture makes no sense at all apart from the reality of judgment to come. Indeed, the gospel makes no sense apart from the reality of judgment to come. So we cannot read and study the Bible without ever having to deal with judgment, no matter how much we do not like to think about it. But it's always there, just around the corner, just under the surface, the unspoken reality between the lines. And God's final judgment can hardly be overstated. It is a terrifying reality. Though we can understand so little about how it will be and what it might look like, what the Bible tells us is indeed awesome. Everyone, every single human being will appear before God on judgment day. Jesus himself promised it. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And that's what we find here in verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, everything will be revealed. Everything will be laid bare, made manifest. Hebrews 4.13 states it clearly, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 12. He said, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Words, motives, secret things, everything will be laid bare before the judgment of God. And the judge will be Christ himself. The world may not like him now. You may not like him. But Psalm 2 says that God has exalted his son as king, whether anyone likes it or not, and we had better honor the son. And so the apostles went about declaring that in the past God overlooked our ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Just as Jesus said, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. And so the Bible, as it unfolds this picture, this context of judgment, finally gets to the final scene in Revelation chapter 20. And there we read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades 
were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, this is a terrible threat to our eternal well-being. This is the threat which ought to consume the world's attention. This is the coming danger against which we ought to be preparing ourselves. But we are so afraid to be out of step with others. We are so fearful of being thought strange. We are so sensitive of what people might think of us. But Jesus warns us, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, Jesus says. Terror ought to fill mankind at every mention of the coming judgment. But that's what makes our text so interesting. For Paul was not afraid. He was not afraid as he writes this. In fact, in verse 8, he says that death has a certain attraction. Look at it again, verse 8. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Death has a certain attraction, not because we want to be unclothed, not because we want to be separated from our body, but it means being present with the Lord. The Lord who is this judge. And here you see, we understand the power of the gospel. Against the backdrop of judgment, we see the greatness of the gospel. This is this uh, truth that the Bible teaches us uh, called justification. Justification, which is God's legal declaration of righteousness, which is imputed to us, put to our account. Justification, which we receive in faith, not because of our works, but as a gift from God. That justification is looking forward always to judgment day. For though on that day all human righteousness will be found to be nothing but rags, we who are in Christ, whom he has justified, will be found to be clothed in a righteousness not our own. The perfect righteousness of Jesus, which is acceptable before God. Therefore, judgment holds no terror for those who are in Christ. This is the good news celebrated in that familiar hymn written by uh, the Moravian bishop, Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed, with joy I shall lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day. For who anything to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am. From sin and fear. From guilt and shame. 
You see, for those who are in Christ, judgment's verdict was already determined at the cross, where Jesus endured sin's condemnation in our place. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He has washed us and we are forgiven. Risen with him, we have passed out of death into life already. Indeed, rather than tremble, we long for his appearing. As Michael Card puts it in his song, on that day we will look into our judge's face and see a savior there. Well, if you don't belong to Jesus, if you're trusting in something else, this morning I warn you to flee this wrath to come. To flee to Jesus in whom alone there is safety. For judgment holds no terror for those who are in Christ. Oh, but there's another truth here, a very sobering truth, which must balance this first most encouraging truth. Which brings us to our second point. Even Christians will give an account to Christ. Even Christians will give an account to Christ. We live in a world where abuse has come to be recognized as a terrible kind of crime. Think of the associations we make in our mind when we hear words like child abuse or sexual abuse or even verbal abuse. No one has much sympathy for abusive behavior. Well, I suggest that there's another kind of, of, of abuse around, which is even more serious, what, what, what Philip Yancey calls grace abuse. That's when people take these wonderful truths of God's deliverance from condemnation and use them to justify doing whatever I please. They reason, well, I can always ask God for forgiveness. He'll forgive me. That's his job. That's great abuse. But the Bible warns us about this. It calls it trampling the Son of God underfoot. Treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant by, by which we were sanctified. Or insulting the Spirit of grace. And so here in 2 Corinthians 5, Though Paul is not afraid to face Christ Jesus, the judge, Paul is also still absolutely certain that he will face Christ Jesus as judge. We must all appear. He's writing to the church at Corinth. He's writing to these believers. He's writing to these who he's just spoken to about being absent from the body and at home with the Lord and, and, and having a heaven being dwelling. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Even Christians will give an account to Christ. Now this is a touchy subject. For we don't want to take back the great truths of the gospel we just proclaimed. And yet we have to take seriously what the Bible teaches about this. So let me explain something of the rationale and what's going on in this judgment. Christians appearing before Christ to give an account. 
Let me speak of two things here. One is a matter of evidence, and the other is a matter of rewards. First of all, in the matter of evidence. This judgment makes sense. This Christians appearing before Christ to give an account makes sense because the grace that justifies also sanctifies. The grace that justifies also sanctifies. Now we talked about justification. That's that act of God whereby he declares us righteous in Jesus. In justification we're passive. We just simply receive a gift in faith. But there's also this matter of sanctification. That's also of God, but it's God's work in us by which he increasingly conforms us to Christ's righteous character. And in that process of sanctification, we are quite active, learning and trusting and obeying. But you see, both of these, our justification and our sanctification... Uh, the, the declaration that we are righteous before God and the promise, the process by which we come to, to live out that righteousness, both of these are the work of God's grace in us. And if God justifies us, he will certainly sanctify us. In other words, grace that justifies also sanctifies. But you can't play games with God. Our newfound righteousness, which we have by faith in Christ, is not just a matter of professing to believe something. God actually gives us new life. That's why we believe. And that's also why we then begin to learn to obey. So for believers, this promised judgment, this accounting before Christ will not be a weighing of our works to see whether we merit salvation. No one merits salvation. No one will ever be justified by keeping the law well enough. All the merit, all the basis for our justification is the perfect righteousness of Jesus in whom we trust. No, instead, this judgment will be a manifestation of our works to reveal whether there, is any, whether there is evidence that is consistent with our profession. We say Jesus is Lord. So is there evidence that we lived in submission to his lordship? We say we have no hope but Jesus. So is he where we have put our hope when the chips are down? We say he's the most important thing in our lives. So do our calendars and our checkbooks back up that claim? We say that we love him. So is there evidence of that in our behavior toward those he loves? In other words, when Christians are called to give an account, it will be along the lines of that bumper sticker which you may have seen. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? On Judgment Day, we will find out.
for Christians will give an account to Christ. This is what James chapter 2 is trying to teach us, though it seems so hard for people to understand. There we read, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. And then James goes on to point out that Abraham, who Genesis 15, 6 says was justified by faith, later when he was told to sacrifice his son, obeyed God and demonstrated his righteousness. So the scripture concludes, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not faith alone. Well, it's proper for us to separate faith and works for the sake of discussion. To make sure that we understand that God's salvation is absolutely all of grace, not by the merit of our works. But in reality, in the way we live, you cannot separate faith from works. The grace of God that produces faith in us also produces action. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, I paraphrase, we are justified by faith alone. But faith is never alone in the person that God justifies. It's always accompanied by all other saving graces. That's exactly what the Spirit says in that wonderful passage in Ephesians 2 that we probably, many of us have memorized as kids. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And there we stop. But the text doesn't stop there. It goes on, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Oh, it's all grace. We receive it by faith, but the same grace that justifies us works in us to produce evidence of new life. And so on Judgment Day, believers will give an account to Christ of the works which we, for which we were created in Christ Jesus. Therefore, at Judgment, there will be a winnowing out of the hypocrites. Hebrews 10 says that if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifices for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Jesus himself in Matthew 7 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say on that day, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Jesus says it again in Matthew 25 when he speaks of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. To those who speak of his love and grace, but care nothing for the needy. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do to me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's no escaping it. Even Christians will give an account to Christ. You can't play games with God. Profession is not enough. Faith that really proceeds from a new life in Christ produces the works of Christ. Just as apple trees inevitably produce apples, not cherries. Well, there's another reason for this accounting of Christians to our Lord, and that's this matter of rewards. Not just evidence of what's real and what's hypocritical, but the matter of rewards. At this accounting, God will also reward us according to what we have done. That's what this verse says. That each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, we're not talking about earning something here. You can't earn God's favor. But nonetheless, there are different levels of faithfulness. We only have to look around to see that. And God promises to recognize and reward appropriately the different levels of faithfulness among his people. On the one hand, it is possible that we might be truly saved, but have wasted a great deal of our lives. That poor stewardship will be revealed when we stand before the Lord, and we will be held accountable for that. In 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul speaks of that kind of accountability in regard to building the church. Talks about the foundation that's been laid, and then, he, and then he says, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If a man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, that is judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Saved, though as by fire, useless works burned up. You see, even Christians will give an account to Christ of their faithfulness with what he has entrusted to them. On the other hand, there are others who have served very faithfully. 
And that too will be recognized. For even though we know that we have done nothing which ever merits God's favor, nonetheless, God makes distinction between faithful service and wasted efforts. Dr. Rayburn summarizes this beautifully in a sermon of his that I read. Let me just uh, uh, read it to you. What you have done well, what you have become as a follower of Christ, what you have faithfully performed in the service of the Lord, all of that will be brought into the open as well. Every tear shed for sin, every struggle to bring your attitude into conformity to the love of Christ, every struggle with impurity, every accusation you ever brought against yourself for your pride or your self-love or your indifference to others, every longing to be holy inside and out for Christ's sake, every loving impulse toward him, every word spoken on his behalf, every deed done simply because you knew it was his will, every sin you forgave from your heart, every kindness shown to others because you knew it was right and would please the Lord, every effort you ever made to keep his commandments and honor his name, every prayer, every word of witness, every true motion of your heart in worship, every moment of serious attention you paid to the Bible as God's word, every sincere confession of sin you ever made to God, every turning away from yourself to Christ and Christ alone as your hope of everlasting life. All of this too. Much of it, the secret and sometimes most painful parts of your life. All of that too will be brought into the open and God will approve it and reward it. Indeed, the truth is, this kind of faithfulness to some extent will be found to be the norm for God's people. In Romans 14, the Spirit says, who are you to judge someone else's servant to his own master? He stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So the Lord will, will reply, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You see, others may not recognize your faithfulness today. Even other Christians may misunderstand and malign you sometimes. But frankly, it doesn't matter. For it is before the Lord that we labor, labor faithfully, and it is before the Lord that we run away in cowardice. And on that day of judgment, the secret things will be made clear, and every child of God will receive his appropriate commendation from the Lord as all believers give an account. Christ. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to be more faithful. Not because I'm terror-stricken at the thought of judgment. Sometimes I'm terror-stricken. And I begin to think about what might possibly enable me to stand in the day of judgment, and I'm reminded that only Christ my Savior would be enough. 
My faith is renewed, and I turn to him, and I rest in him again, and my heart is assured that that's enough. Oh, but when I realize what he's done for me, I want to be more faithful to him. I want not to be ashamed when I give an account of my stewardship with the treasures he's entrusted to me. Indeed, I want to have multiplied treasures to offer to him in praise and worship when I see him face to face. Don't you? For we will give an account to our Lord. Judgment Day for the unbeliever will be the most terrifying day of his life. The Bible describes in the most frightening terms there will be no place to hide. There will be no more excuses. There will be no negotiation. All the rank and power and wealth will mean nothing. God will pronounce condemnation and reward each one according to his sinful actions. If that's where you're headed, this, this situation is more serious than a thousand terrorist attacks. You must turn around and trust yourself to Jesus and follow him. But Judge Day for the believer is a bit more difficult to explain. On the one hand, it holds no terror for us, for in Christ, for he has taken our judgment already on the cross. But at the same time, the Lord says plainly that we will give an account to him for our actions, and that we will be rewarded according to our actions. So how can justification by faith and judgment according to works ever come together? Well, let me just suggest an analogy, a possibility, as we close. Suppose you had a very wealthy but very wise grandfather. And because he loves you so, he leaves you an inheritance of millions and millions of dollars. It's a gift. You did not earn it. He did. Nothing you could do could possibly ever convince him to give that gift to you. He simply loved you and gave you his fortune. But being wise as well as wealthy, your grandfather insists that you pursue an education in order to walk in his steps in this life. And so he puts your inheritance in a trust with some stipulations. You must go to school. He will pay the bill. Go to the college of your choice. But you must go. If you have trouble, he has provided for tutors so that you can complete. But you must go. Every year that you complete, 
you will be rewarded with some token of that inheritance. And the next year you will get a bit more. But you will not receive the entire inheritance until you receive your degree. That's what he decided. Now that arrangement is something like what God has done with us. No matter how hard you worked at school in that kind of a situation, you could never say, I put my way through college. No, you didn't. He paid your way. And no matter how well you did in school, you could never say, I earned $100 million by going to college. You don't earn money by going to college. You pay money to go to college. At the same time, if you did not complete all the prescribed schooling, you would not enjoy your loving grandfather's inheritance. You would have wasted the inheritance. Isn't that how Christ deals with us? Except that he will personally do the accounting when we see him face to face. For we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due us for the things done in the body. Now that should not be a dreadful day, but there is a sense of responsibility about that day. Though the one we will appear before is one who loves us and has given us his inheritance. Amen. Oh, Father, there's so much we don't understand when we talk about judgment. But this much we know. We have no hope but Jesus. Lord, we would keep coming back and resting ourselves in you. And this much we know. You do hold us accountable. It matters what we do. So make us faithful. Good stewards diligent about your business, faithful in what you've entrusted into our hands as those who will stand before you and give an account for what we've done. Whether we understand it or not, Lord, may we be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.